setting the stage. He's building the tension. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. So note three things in this verse. And these three things that are packed in verse 1, again, it's, it's, it's setting the stage for the hearer, for the reader. First, note how this Levite is unnamed. Right? In fact, in the remaining chapters of Judges, only one person is named. And in this chapter, no one is named. And, and thus, this causes us to view each person, um, to, to view them beyond the individual. Yes, they are individuals, but they also represent their associated groups. So when we think of this certain Levites, we are to think of the Levitical priesthood, all the Levites, uh, similar to what we did in Judges 17 and 18 before that unnamed Levite became named at the end of uh, chapter 18. Second, consider how this certain Levite, like the previous Levite in 17 and 18, how this one was sojourning. He's wandering around. Again, why is he wandering around? This is not good that this Levite is just doing what he wants. He's not sticking to where God wants him to do. He's not in Shiloh, and he's not in one of the designated Levitical cities. And why is that? Well, these are the days when there was no king, and everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. Third, see who he takes as a wife. Right? This is a concubine. Uh, this is a second-class citizen. Um, the last person in the book of Judges to take a concubine was Gideon in chapter 8. And remember what the offspring of that relationship led to, right? Abimelech was the son of Gideon and his concubine. And Abimelech brought bloodshed, chaos to the area. So the question, for as the person reads this, well, wait a second, last time a concubine was involved in Judges, it wasn't good. What's this concubine going to bring upon the people of Israel? Let's continue, verse 2. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, the Levite, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. So it seems the relationship's not going to amount to much. It seems like it's ended pretty quickly. And also note, uh, before I get too far ahead, the location of all this. Bethlehem, uh, Ephraim, this is in the heart of Israel. It's in the center of the land. Now, in verse 2, the ESV says that the concubine was unfaithful. And the Hebrew here is a little tricky. Um, And in what way was she unfaithful, we're not sure. Uh, Some have argued that this concubine represents adulterous Israel during this time. Uh, But that's not given to us in the scripture. Never in scripture is Israel ever represented as a concubine, as a second-class citizen. As an unfaithful wife, yes but not as a concubine. Uh, she certainly could have been a, a prostitute, right? Sometimes concubines are prostitutes, but not always. And so she could have been unfaithful in that way. And, and perhaps she felt neglected by her husband, and, and so she left him. We, we, we don't know. Uh, Israelite law, though, doesn't allow a, a woman to um, divorce the husband. Only the man can, can make that file, can actually make that decision, Um, She can't legally, at least by the law, leave. But again, it's Judges 19. Uh, These are dark and strange times in Israel's history. So that could have like no bearing on this matter. Some translations like the NET and NLT say the concubine was angry with her husband. Others say that she was playing the harlot. Uh, Either way, uh, 
whichever way you take it, it doesn't matter. The point is that she left him and she went to go live with her father. I personally tend towards that she was angry towards him um, and left him rather than playing uh, the harlots. And she goes back to her father's house and her father seems to welcome her with, with open arms. And there's no mention about her um, being adulterous be, beyond this um, ambiguous expression. But perhaps her father welcomed her home as a harlot uh, if she was a prostitute uh, because she can help with the family income. That's, that's a possibility um, as well. But again, uh, this detail doesn't impact the greater picture of the chapter. So let's get back to chapter verse 3. Then her husband arose, went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay and remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread. And after that, you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. That is, drink with me. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your hearts and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning for your journey and go home. This is good hospitality. This father-in-law is being overly generous to his um, son-in-law. Right? Now, it's customary to stay a few days with your host um, and to enjoy the hospitality, generosity of him. But to go beyond that is extra. And it's a bit much. Um, and, and again, don't neglect or, or don't f- miss how eager the father was to welcome his son-in-law, the Levite, as well as the concubine. She, was, sh- she received him excited. She was excited to see him. And note that the effort that the Levite put into this. He brought his, 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 his servants, his company, donkey. He's putting on uh, his best to reconcile whatever the issue is with this concubine. He's doing what he can to reconcile this relationship. Uh, These verses here are a bright light in an otherwise very dark chapter. However, with the frequent references to time here, right, as you note them, three days, spent the night, in the morning, spent the night, rose up, spent the night, rose early in the morning, the day declines, and then the last request by the Father, the day has waned, the day has closed toward evening. The tension's building almost as if just as the day is closing on, on this day and the light is waning, one has to wonder, these verses are good, but are they too coming to a close? So we're left wondering, will the Levite stay another day or will he leave when it's late in the day and perhaps ill-advised to go? So let's read verse 10. But the Levite would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabus, that is Jerusalem. 
he had with him a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jabus, and Jabus is about six miles north of Bethlehem, the day was nearly over and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside in the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. That's another two to three miles. And he said to this young man, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city. For no one took them into his house to spend the night. So they go six miles and they're near Jabus. And the day's waning, night's upon them. But the Levite doesn't want to stay there. It's Jebusites. It's not Israelites. They're not fellow brothers. They're not going to take care of us. They're foreigners. We're outsiders. It's wise. We're not going to find hospitality with foreigners. We should go to an Israelite city. However, when they arrive at Gibeah, he doesn't find any hospitality there. And so they intend to stay the night in the city square. And that reference to the city square should begin for the reader, for the hearer, especially the Jew, Genesis 19. Now, Judges 19, Genesis 19, there's, that, that's providential coincidence there. But hearing the city square, it's like, boy, last time somebody stayed in a city square or wanted to stay in a city square, it didn't turn out. So now we're starting to see similarities between Judges 19 and Genesis 19 of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and, and starting in verse 22, we see very clear and explicit similarities, almost word for word in some cases, and at the same time, in other cases, rather distinct. So there are different situations, different events, but the author is being intentional of, of say, using Sodom and Gomorrah language here. So the, author, so, the, so the author's original audience is like, this is Sodom and Gomorrah in Israel. That's what he's trying to do. So let's go on and, and read verse 16 to see what happens to the concubine and the Levite and his company. So they're in the city square. Behold, an old man is coming from his work in the field at evening. So the sun has set. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. Notice the author's being intentional to distinguish the different people people who were involved here. This is going to come into play in chapter 20. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler, that's the Levite, in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going? Where do you come from? The Levite said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to the house of Yahweh. Now, ESV says house of Yahweh. Other translations will say I'm going back to, I'm going to my house. Uh, there's a textual critical issue here. Uh, my house is probably the more likely um, intention uh, here because we don't have any indication that the Levite actually is intending to go to the house uh, of Yahweh. And there's no mention of it. Either way, again, that detail doesn't matter because it doesn't come into play uh, with this account. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There, there's no lack of anything. In other words, we have all that we need for ourselves. We just need a bed. We just need shelter. 
And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house, gave the donkeys feed. They washed their feet and ate and drank. Now this is good hospitality. This is what the Levite was expecting when he arrived at Gibeah. But even this guy, he's not Benjamite. He, he, he's not a local. He's not a native to, to Gibeah. He himself is a sojourner like the Levites. And he understands the nature of the people who reside in Gibeah. Even the way that they act towards their own people, towards fellow Israelites. So he's like, you can't stay out here. Come in, and, and I know you can provide everything for yourselves, but don't worry about that. I will provide for you. I will be generous for you. I will take care of you. So he takes them in, and he's overly generous to them for now. So let's read verses 22 to 30, and this is where we definitely begin to see those similarities of Sodom and Gomorrah account in Genesis 19 with Judges 19. So as they were making their hearts merry, as they were drinking, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, or your translation might say sons of Belial, but that means worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. Now that we may know him, that that's not, that's not a, uh, hey, we are curious and we want to have a chit-chat. Like, this isn't a Q&A time. They want to get to know him uh, in the most intimate ways. So they, they want to get to know him in a sexual way. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them. And do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine. Now whether the man is Levi, the old man is debated. Uh, I believe it to be the Levite. The reading tends to lend that way. Plus it's not the old man seized, but it's the man. And it's his concubine. Made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who said it, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel. And speak. Now that last phrase there, the consider it, take counsel, speak. Some have argued, um, is this what the people were saying? Or is this the author actually adding commentary on such a serious account? It could be both. So what are we to make of all of this? There are many questions on this account. There are many questions to wrestle with. 
but not all questions can be or are meant to be answered. Or rather, the existence of such questions further highlight the depravity of the situation. The, the, the presence of these questions highlight the depth of the, of the ridiculousness of this situation. It is to cause shock and horror, horror among the people of Israel. How can this be? How is this? Why did this happen? Why did we allow it to happen? How do we prevent it from happening? So let's look at this a little bit more closely and let's name the sins that we see here and then we'll consider the how. First, where is the hospitality? Right now, this is not like Sodom and Gomorrah. Right, Many today have tried to make the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's simply about inhospitality. Well, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were just inhospitable. It wasn't about homosexuality. Well, it wasn't. I mean, if you read Genesis 19, it's clear the desire was to rape the angels that were with Lot, the two men, which, yes, that is inhospitable, but the sin wasn't just inhospitality. It was for the homosexual act desire there, right? Jude 7 is clear on that, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, right? The sin there is the, homo, the homosexual desire, right? That was the issue, not in, in hospitality. Here in Judges 19, though, inhospitality is one of the issues. See, Gibeah is not a foreign city. It's not Jabez. They're not foreigners. It's not Sodom. It's not Gomorrah. It's, it's an Israelite city. It belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. Israelites should be and were expected to look out for their own. But they did not. The, the generosity they should have had should have been similar to what the father-in-law extended to the Levite when he showed up. It should have been what the old man had offered and provided for a bit. The Levite left the generous hospitality of his father-in-law to head home. And in his journey, he intentionally avoided Jabez because they're foreigners. Who knows where you're going to get with them? Not hospitality. With an Israelite city, it should have been hospitality. Thus the Levite, he thought that Gibeah, he would get such hospitality. But in the end, instead of finding what should have been an Israelite city, he found a present-day Sodom and Gomorrah. And that leads us to the second and third sins. The worthless fellows of Gibeah, they desired to rape the Levite. Now, there's two things wrong with this. One, this, this man is a Levite. And yet, there's, there's not a care in the world for this priest. In fact, there's not even a mention of the fact that he's a Levite. The, the, the master of the house doesn't even say, leave this man alone. He's a priest of the Almighty. He's a priest of God. There's no mention of it. They know he's a, he's a Levite, but there's no mention of it. And that just shows the state of the priesthood and the state of how people viewed the priesthood. Who cares? It doesn't matter. The fact that he was a priest gets no airtime. The, that the fact that Yahweh has set this man apart from everyone and everything, it doesn't matter. The only thing that mattered in this moment was the old man's honor in protecting his male guest, and as well as just the sexual lusts of the men who were trying to rape him. And then the second thing that's wrong with this is the more obvious thing, that is the desire for men to lay with men. Not only is this not consensual, right? So the act of rape in itself is wrong, but this is homosexual rape with a priest at that. Homosexual sin, we need to understand, is different from heterosexual sin 
because it is a sin that is purely selfish. There's no good in it at all, none. Life cannot come from a homosexual relationship. It is born out of a desire to satisfy the needs and lusts of the self and of the individual. It is about receiving and taking. It is not about giving. It is by its nature a selfish form of love and it is utterly unnatural and contrary to the purpose of the creator. Thus it is an abomination. It is on a different level of sin than most other sins. Yes, all sin separates us from the Father, but, other, but, but within that category, some sins are more severe than others, and homosexuality is at the top of the list. Leviticus 18.22 clearly states this, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. And, and, and it's, the reverse is implied as well. You shall not lie with a, a woman as you would with a man if you're a woman. It is an abomination. And then later in Leviticus 18, we were told it's because of these sins, these homosexual desires, that the people of Canaan, they were being judged and expelled from the land. They're not being expelled for inhospitality. They're being expelled for the abominations they were committing. Again, homosexuality, it is a truly selfish an unrighteous sin. The third sin is sexual as well, except this one is heterosexual in nature. And in fact, it's actually two sins. The worthless fellows refused the old man's virgin daughter and concubine initially, but the Levite, trying to protect himself, seized his concubine and threw her to the wolves, and they had their way with her all night. See, they, they couldn't satisfy their homosexual lusts, so they took it out on her all night, violently, without satisfaction, until the light came. A, a woman who was under the care of her master, notice how he's called the master during this time and not the Levite. This woman who was under the care of her master did not have, like the daughters of Lot had, she didn't have angels at that moment to protect her. That was her master's responsibility, the Levite's responsibility, her husband's responsibility. So she was thrown. And so not only are these worthless men complicit in, in, in did these men commit rape? And did the, uh, the Levites and the old man, they themselves are complicit in the rape. They fed her to them. But they're also complicit in adultery. Right? This wasn't a virgin daughter who was unmarried. But this woman, this concubine, was a man's wife. So her husband, doing what was right in in his own eyes, gave her up to these men who were doing what was right in their own eyes. So who protects the weak? Who protects the vulnerable and the marginalized when there is no king? And then we have the murder of the concubine. These sins just keep adding up. Now whether she died from the sexual abuse of the worthless fellows as she crawled back to where her master was, Or whether the Levite himself killed her, we don't know for sure. He denies that he's the one that killed her in chapter 20, but can he really be trusted? Either way, the blood of an image bearer of God has been spilt and has been spilt in a perverse and wicked way. Even after the woman is dead, her body doesn't find any rest. Her her body is seized once again by a man, by her husband, to be dismembered 
to be used. And this time it's used to call Israel together to consider these crimes of Gibeah, to consider the state of things in Israel. How did this come to be? How did this happen? How did Sodom and Gomorrah return? And in the heart of Israel at that, how did this happen? And next week, we're going to see how Israel responds to this. But for us today, we need to be considering this. How did Sodom and Gomorrah return? How did it come at the heart of Israel? How did it come by the hands of a Levite? We'll go back to verse 1. There was no king. There was no king to administer righteousness and justice. There was no king to ensure the law of Yahweh was being taught and obey. Thus, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They were, in essence, their own kings. Even Yahweh, the true king, the true judge, was not viewed as king. That this happened because the first great commandment of the law was forgotten and broken. Right? Jesus tells us what the great commandment is, Matthew 22, 36, 37. Teacher, somebody speaking to Jesus, what is, which is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Right? He's quoting part of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 5 there. And because that commandment was forgotten and broken, thus the second great commandment was violated as well. And thus the whole of the law collapsed. Right? Matthew 22, 38, 40, right? Jesus in the very next verse says, you know, this is the great and first commandment. Love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the hospitality there. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, the law and the prophets describe how you live this out. They give you ways to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and all that. And they also show you how to love your neighbor as yourself. See, the sins of Judges 19 are manifestations of not loving your neighbor as yourself. They are sins rooted in love for self and not others. Sodom returned as Israelites treated one another as each saw fit in accordance to their own eyes. Even the old man and the Levites, they failed to love properly their neighbor, their daughter, the daughter and the concubine because they were more in love with honor and love for self than they were with God and their sister and, and brother to other fellow image bearers. They had a, a love that was defined um, either by society or, or by the individual rather than a love defined by God. As the old man sought to protect his male guest, he thought he was doing right. He thought he was being loving towards the Levite. But in doing so, he neglected love towards his sister, the concubine. He neglected his love towards his own virgin daughter. He neglected love towards the weak and the marginalized. And this is a love not of Yahweh. This is a love of the gods of the land. This is a love of the Canaanites. A love that's ultimately defined by the people themselves. When there is no king, when there is no external authority to dictate righteousness and what it looks like to love others, then the self becomes the authority. Thus, righteousness is determined then by the individual, by society. And love is determined by the subjective feelings of the deceptive heart. 
And when an individual or a society is left to their own to live in this manner, it will eventually, outside of God's grace restraining it, it will eventually manifest itself in ways that we have seen here in Judges 19 or in similar ways. Communal relationships break down, sexual perversion increases, and then becomes open. It's no longer hidden. The weak and marginalized are taken advantage of, whether it's a virgin daughter and concubine in Judges 19, or it's a young boy or girl who are forced or led to take puberty blockers in 2024. They're the same. When there is no king, and authority rests within and not without, the lives of others are viewed objectively. The worthless men didn't care what the Levite thought. They wanted to rape him. The Levite nor the old man cared about the concubine or the daughter. They only cared about themselves. So when there is no righteous king, who is there to protect the weak and the vulnerable from the powerful? Who is there to restrain lawlessness and perversion in the land? But there is a king, isn't there? Even in Judges 19, there was a king, a king forgotten, a king denied. God was still king. Israel didn't need a king during this time. Even when they get a king on earth, like some kings lead, lead them into idolatry and immorality and others to faithful devotion of Yahweh. But here in Judges, they didn't need a king to lead them into immorality. They led themselves. This is where they wanted to go. And Judges makes this clear. There was no king. They are more than willing to allow themselves to be led astray by rejecting the authority of Yahweh in their lives, by forgetting who Yahweh is and what he has done. Note, these final chapters are happening close to the days of Joshua and the days of Moses. Right? The one person that's named in these final chapters, uh, 19 to 21, it's Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron. Right? Phineas is the man who took the spear and ran it through the... Um, the man who was sleeping with one of the Moabite women, I believe it was, a Midianite woman, one of the foreign women. What is it supposed to? Bringing God's judgment upon the land. He's the only one that's named. It makes this happen very close to the days of Joshua and Moses. This isn't like generations separated apart. This is very close to the days of Moses and Joshua. And yet these men, this, these people of Israel, they were willing to reject, deny Yahweh. Thus, they weren't able to keep the law because they weren't able to keep the first two great commandments. But when God is remembered, when Yahweh is known, well, then the neighbor is loved. When we keep God first and foremost in our lives, when we are wholly devoted to him, when we submit to him as a king's people do to their king, then we will love our neighbor as we ought to. We will extend generous hospitality, uh, not only to our brothers and sisters, but to our foreigners. To, to, I mean, not to our foreigners, it doesn't make sense, but to foreigners, to outsiders, to immigrants, to the weak, the marginalized, the oppressed, even to our enemies. We give sacrificially, we love sacrificially, and, and we do so not because it, it, it's easy or because it gives us a warm fuzzy. We, we do it because it's commanded. We will provide for those in need and stand up for the weak and for the oppressed. 
We will speak out against violence and hatred. We will do what we can to help those under our care, those whom we can help. See, when we know God, we know love. Thus, we are able to love rightly. But when we do not know God rightly, we cannot love rightly. We must not think as the world, as society often does today, that one can know God simply by the act of loving others. Right? You just got to love people. As long as you're loving people, you'll know God. Thus, we end up loving as our heart determines. We, we end up loving as we see fit, as our eyes see fit, rather than what God says love is. And so when we do it that way, we fail to both know God and to know love. Thus, we ultimately fail at loving our neighbor. So that begs the question, how does one know God so that they may know love? One must submit to him, right? You cannot know the God who is all light and all truth by walking in darkness and living by lies. John 14, 21, Jesus in the upper room says, whoever has my commandments keeps them, that is, obeys them. That person, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love and reveal myself, show myself, manifest myself to him. In other words, he will know me. So the question that you need to wrestle with today is this. Who is the king of your life? The people of Judges 19 had no king. They had no God but themselves. So who rules your life? To whom are you submitting? What commandments are you keeping? Who determines what love is in your life? Is it the true king, Jesus Christ, the son of God, who died for your sin, who died for your hatred, for your selfishness, for your rebellion, for your lusts of the flesh, so that you may live in no love? Is it him? Or are you the king? Are you the authority in your life? Who are you living for? Who are you serving? Now, maybe you have forgotten God. Maybe you have forgotten Christ. Your life is no longer marked by sacrificial giving and love. You no longer speak up for the voiceless, for the helpless. You're no longer quick to respond to your brothers and sisters in need. You keep a cold heart toward the poor and the oppressed. You keep a cold heart towards widows and orphans. Maybe you're like the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. You've forgotten the love that you've had at first. If you're Love has grown cold, distant, or you've forgotten it altogether. Repent. Look to Christ once more. Or maybe for you, look to Christ for the first time. Look to the Son of Man who is lifted up on the cross for your sin, that by his blood he may reconcile you to his Father, that you may have everlasting life. Don't, don't wait for a feeling within you to come that says this... I feel it. I feel the love finally. Now my emotions are finally where they need to be for me to be saved. Salvation is not a subjective experience. Right? It's objective. It's rooted in something outside of yourself. It's, It's not what depends on the person kind of experience. The details may depend on the person. But ultimately, the reality of it, the truth of it. It's the same for everybody. 
because it's rooted in Christ. It's not rooted in what you do. It's rooted in what he has done. So don't wait to be clean, to be morally right. Don't wait to be better equipped. He'll take care of all of that. Maybe you're gay. Maybe you have sexual desires that have been described here in Judges 19. Whether they're homosexual or heterosexual desires, turn to Christ. His blood is for you. His blood is for me. And if you trust in him as the son of God and man, there is no sin that his blood can't wash away. None. So go to him. Seek his grace, knowing that his love is steadfast and it it abounds beyond our comprehension. We can, maybe even in eternity, we won't ever fully comprehend the amount of grace that God has lavished upon us. He doesn't keep a short leash. That's why you don't need to be better equipped. It's not like, well, I only get one chance with God, so if I come to him now and then I mess it up, it's over. No, that's not how it works. When you come to him, he doesn't give you a short leash. In fact, he gives you a pledge. He gives you a guarantee. He gives you the Holy Spirit by which he seals you for eternity. So go to him. If love is lacking in your life, then let your prayer life be marked with laments about that reality. Let it be marked also with repentance. Right? And I say repentance because lacking love is not merely about lacking a feeling as society wants you to think. Right? You've got to pray for that feeling and come back. No, it's not the feeling that we're worried about. It will come, and some days you'll have it. Other days you won't. If you're married, you get this. Or if you've been married for beyond the honeymoon phase, you get this. But if you lack love, it's about repentance because this is more about lacking actions. It's about lacking deeds. Right? Love is more than a feeling. You know if somebody loves somebody by how they act or don't act. So look at the actions. Consider the consequences of Judges 19. Take counsel and then act accordingly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your word. Um, we thank you that we are able to have a voice, one from you, but, but a voice from the past that warns us, that teaches us uh, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of holiness, for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of love. Help us to wrestle with the reality of what we have read this morning. Help us to wrestle with, with um, the truth of sin. And the various kinds of sins, Father, uh, especially with uh, homosexuality and just sexual sin um, altogether, which, which seems to be so rampant these days. Give us discerning souls, but souls of love as well that, that speak grace and truth to a world that is desperately lost and desperately just seems trapped in its own darkness and selfishness. Help us be bold to speak your truth, your love, to those who need to hear it so that you would be glorified and your name would be known. Help us to be faithful in that task. But help us, Father, also within our own lives to be faithful. 
Help us to repent of our sins, to be aware of our sins, to confess our sins to you, and, and to seek the light so that we may walk in it. If we lack love, Father, show us the way. Teach us what love is. May we as brothers and sisters help one another walk in love by modeling it for one another, uh, demonstrating it for one another, living it out. Father, may your truth shape how we live and whatever we may do, Father, may we glorify you. And Father, as we come to the table this morning, we ask that you bless the bread and the cup, that it would encourage us, that it would remind us of what your son has done for us on the cross, the, the blood that he has shed so that our sins would be forgiven. Help us to confess our sins this morning. Help us to seek repentance. And help us to know the joy and the peace that comes with it, Father. Help us to find rest in it as well. Father, we ask this so that as we go out from here, we would be equipped, that we would be sanctified, and that we would be edified so we can be the witnesses you call us to be. We ask all these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So at this time, uh, we'll go into communion. If you are a uh, believer who's not walking in unrepentant sin, you can come on up, uh, grab the elements, uh, take it to your seat, um, and, and then Doug will lead us in taking the elements together. Then we'll close a couple songs of worship. Juice is in the inner two circles of, the, of each of the trays. Wine on